all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Good morning to everybody. This is the program where you can call in with your medical questions. We'll try to answer those to the best of my ability or to point you in the right direction. The number to call if you have a question about anything related to medications or new diagnoses or maybe some symptoms that you haven't quite got a diagnosis on yet. You can uh, call in today at one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven. Six seven two seven four six four. If you're not able to call in right now, you can always send an email to us. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. And if you'd like to catch previous programs, we do archive those. Give us about 24 hours to get those up and running. Uh, you can go to mpbonline.org and search for Southern Remedy and pull those up. No, uh, a lot of times you're not able to get the whole conversation on something, maybe came in a little bit late on that on the radio. We uh, always um, uh, have those archives so you can go back and hear the entire program. Well, it's been a few weeks. We've had a lot going on in our country and uh, some good, some bad. Uh, Hopefully this is a new year, a new turn towards uh, more hope and uh, more cohesiveness as a nation uh, and certainly uh, better health care outcomes for everybody. I'm hoping uh, for that too. Uh, I would encourage you if you uh, if you are one of those people who tend to wait until the last minute to call in, we generally have a little bit more time in the first part of the hour uh, to call in. So I want to encourage you to go ahead and do that. And again, the number to call is one eight seven seven MPB ring, one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Believe we've got Kay on the line from Memphis. Good morning, Kay. Good morning, Kay. Are you there? <laughs> I have uh, two or three things I want to ask you about. Well, for one thing, you are going to be losing me or I'm going to be losing you because in two or three months, I'm moving to the Boston area. (laughs) Uh What do you know about? I I know Boston is pretty well known for its doctors and hospitals and so forth. Do you have any particular connections up there? Uh, That's, uh, yeah, that's quite a change for you there, Kay. So, uh, yeah, it's, I don't know a whole lot of people. I have a son living up there. I have a son. Okay, good. So, uh, yeah, so I don't know a whole lot of people in the Boston area, but there are plenty of opportunities, as you mentioned, to find a good physician and uh, that can take care of you. I do want to encourage you, you're not losing us uh, because you can still go online and listen online, even in Boston. So if you go to mpbonline.org, you can listen anywhere in the world if you have an internet connection. And if oh, you have a phone, you can always call in from there. 
Oh, I plan to do all of that. Plus <laughs> <laughs> everything else I'm planning to do up there. Um, yes, ma'am. But the, the, the other thing is, well, see, I've been living alone here. I've lived in the same house for 34, 43 years, and I have been living alone for 32 years. And I decided I want to go live with somebody. <laughs> so anyway, um, okay, I want to ask you about one one question I really have is, why do they want you to take amlodipine when you're not having problems with your blood pressure? Sure. So amlodipine is a long-acting blood pressure medication, and uh, it's a once-a-day medication. Uh, now, people uh, get a little bit confused with it. I have patients that I put on amlodipine, and it does the trick. The blood pressure comes down uh, to, a, to a controlled level. And then uh, they'll come back to see me and say, well, can I stop my amlodipine now? And I say, well, no, because it's working. It's doing what it should do. So I think there's a little bit of confusion with that, that once your blood pressure comes down, a lot of people think, well, I'm cured. I can get off my blood pressure medication. And that goes for others, too. It's not just amlodipine. Um, But it's important to continue to take that. You run into problems if you take it some days and don't take it other days. That's not the way it's designed to work. So finding a, a correct dose for that, uh, you know, your physician or your primary uh, care person needs to find that correct oh, yeah. dose that's going to get you in. Yeah, yeah, cardiologist would be yeah. perfect. But yeah, that's so the reason. I, actually, actually, he's uh, he's almost my everything, and I I, I guess this is as good a point as any to insert this because I'm very proud of myself and I'm proud of the compliment. I was in the emergency room Monday uh, back months ago and the nurse there knew that my cardiologist had a patient upstairs and she said I'm going to be going up there and I'll ask him if he wants to come down and say hello well she did and her his reply was well I really don't have time but of all of my patients she is the one that I worry about the least because she knows what to do and she knows (laughs) I thought that was a compliment Yes, ma'am. Kay, did you have another question about something else? Oh, 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 yeah. Um, what about warfarin? What, what's the problem with staying on warfarin too long? So warfarin or coumadin is another name for it. is a blood thinner, yeah. so it works to you know thin your blood out, particularly if you're at risk from getting clots somewhere, and those clots can be in different areas of your body. So it can help reduce the risk of of developing those clots in places like the lungs or your brain, uh, you know, lots of other places too. So, uh, you know, that's, that's something else that does run risk, like everything else that we take medication-wise. So the, the risk of Coumadin or Warfarin is that if you, your blood gets too thin, you can run the risk of bleeding, and that can be bleeding in your GI tract uh, or it can be bleeding elsewhere. So it's sort of, again, a happy medium of getting blood just thinned enough that you're not going to have those blood clots uh, you know, in, in one case, or if you're, you know, if you're, that you're not going to have the, the bleeding, but there is, you know, you can be on it for a long time and your physician may say, well, you know what, at your age, at this point, you may not need to be on it anymore. And again, that's because the risk of having a bleed may be a little bit higher at that point than having the risk of a clot. Well, I, I just celebrated my 90th birthday and I'm headed for 95 now. All right. Well, you go full force into into there, Katie. And uh, when you move to uh, when you move to Boston, just tune in to us and uh, and uh, call in when you need to. Okay. 
I don't know whether you remember or not, but I'm a retired medical social worker trained in. I do remember that. Yes, yeah, ma'am, so, I do remember that. Yeah. All right, Kate. So I'm, I'm very, I'm very comfortable in the medical field. That, oh yeah, I, I have no doubts there. So, uh, <laughs> Kate, you, you take care and uh, tune in to us when you move to Boston. Oh, I plan to. You're here. All you're right. here for me. Okay. Bye -bye. Have a good day. All right, let's go to uh, John from Hattiesburg. Good morning, John. Morning, Dr. Stewart. What's your uh, question or comment today? Yeah, I've got a couple of questions. Uh, a couple, several months ago, uh, you had a guy call in that had excessive bacteria in the small intestine. Yeah, bacterial overgrowth. Okay, and I was wondering, can that number one, can that be caused by by probiotics? And the second one is, how long should you someone take a probiotic? Yeah, probiotics, uh, if you're not familiar with this, uh, you know, probiotics are good bacteria, basically. So it's things that help either promote the growth of good bacteria in our gut um, or if, um, you know, if, if, they're the, the, if your, your gut bacteria get wiped out for a reason, like with an antibiotic, um, the theory is if you put those back into the right order of those good bacteria, then you can have normal functioning. And there is an emerging area of research in this that it actually um, interacts with our immune systems. I saw an article the other day about an association between gut bacteria and COVID, uh, you know, COVID complications. So it, back to your question, you know, bacterial overgrowth, it's not necessarily from taking uh, probiotics. Now, if you take antibiotics, if you're taking antibiotics for something and there's a prolonged course, certainly that can, in some instances, have bacterial overgrowth of the wrong types of bacteria that move up from the colon, the large intestine, up into the small intestine. Um, but as far as I know, there's no evidence to suggest that taking probiotics will harm you in any way. Um, you want to consult with your physician, of course. There may be some medications or conditions that you have uh, that you're taking that, uh, that may interfere with that. But overall, um, there's, there shouldn't be any kind of, uh, shouldn't be any kind of complications with that. So, uh, how long you should take it would be just once you own it, you take it forever. Yeah. But there's no, yeah, the John, there's no real evidence to suggest, you know, a time period, there haven't been any studies that say, okay, for this condition, you know, you need to do this. Now we'll say, if you eat particularly things like a Mediterranean diet, it has been associated with the same types of good bacteria that you would normally get if you're taking a probiotic. But probiotics have not been studied extensively, um, you know, either in what they do positively for your body or in the duration that you should take them. But what I can say is there, you know, there's no real harm there in doing that. So you could continue to take it as long as you wanted to. Okay, thank you, Dr. Stewart. Take care. All right, John. Thank you for calling in. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy.
Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning and bringing your questions or taking your comments about any kind of medical problem that you might be dealing with, or maybe it's somebody in your family. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one 672 7464 We're going to go to David from Horn Lake. Good morning, David. Uh, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, I'm fixing to turn 65, and I haven't been to a doctor in over 10 years. Uh, my father had Parkinson's, my mother had Alzheimer's, and I had a sister that had multiple sclerosis. Uh, for my 65th birthday, I'm gonna break, I'm a hard-headed heathen, like I said. I'm gonna finally break down and go see a doctor. Is there a test uh, available to test for Alzheimer's? And and what since I hadn't been to the doctor in over 10 years, what should I? Uh, uh, Yeah, great questions there, David. Uh, let me applaud you for uh, moving in that direction. I think, as you mentioned, uh, you know, having uh, having those risks of other family members, particularly of those things that you mentioned, there may be some other things that are there. Uh, the reason why we advocate for um, for going to the physician like that, even if you don't have currently known problems, is to, is to pick up on things early, and some things can be treatable. Now, there's not, back to your sort of specific questions, there's not really a one test that you can have, like a blood test or something like that, or a scan that you can do for Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is a progressive disease that causes dementia. There are changes that occur in the brain that you can pick up with, say, an MRI or a CT scan, but it is, it is very subtle in how it, how it presents. Now, we do know that in families that have Alzheimer's, uh, sometimes that can be your risk of getting it is a little bit higher. There are other types of dementia, and the best way to prevent those is to prevent some of the things that cause the dementia. Things like high blood pressure, which you can have absolutely no symptoms and have high blood pressure, does damage to those small vessels in the brain over time that causes dementia. Diabetes, which you can also have just minimal symptoms. So plenty of reasons why at 65 you should go to the physician. Uh, there are also some immunizations that you can get, particularly at 65, uh, that may prevent some, some general health risks. Uh, a pneumovax or a pneumonia vaccine, some people call it. That's something that at 65 that we would recommend. But always a good idea just to go in for a checkup and just because a lot of things, unfortunately, you don't have to have symptoms to have it. You know, I've seen people with high blood pressure that had blood pressures 180 to 200 over 100. And they didn't have any symptoms, um, <clears throat> and they called it, you know, just going in to see somebody or maybe taking their blood pressure out at the pharmacy or grocery store. And just because you don't have symptoms doesn't mean that you're not doing damage to your body. And uh, the first symptom you may have, particularly with high blood pressure, might be a stroke or a heart attack. So it's important. It can be the, the damage that's done. You can reverse that over time if you if you isolate those things that are causing it. So those are all good reasons to go to a physician just to have sort of a once-over 
but uh, you know back to that specific question there's not really one test unfortunately that we can do that says okay you, you're gonna have alzheimer's or you're at risk for it family history is probably the biggest thing okay thank you so much all right thank you david for calling in we'll go to robert in gulfport good morning robert hello hey robert this is dr stewart are you there yes can you hear me doctor yes sir loud and clear okay doctor i was going to say it's a comment that I wish to share, and maybe if you can give uh, some elaboration on it. We know that there's three main categories of uh, blood pressure, aren't they? Calcium channel blockers, ACE inhibitors, and beta blockers. And my, I suffer from both high blood pressure and psoriasis. And years ago, I had a, an extremely and very rare uh, bad outbreak of the psoriasis. And a dermatologist told me, you need to get off the beta blockers because beta blockers will aggravate psoriasis. Now, I've been uh, to several, you know, different physicians and uh, primary care uh, people to uh, get my uh, prescriptions filled for the high blood pressure, which I'm glad to say is under control. But um, um, from time to time, uh, uh, individuals in the medical field are kind of surprised when I say I don't want a beta blocker because, and they say I've never heard of that. Have you ever heard of that? I know that I experienced it, but have you ever heard of it? So there are some associations with some medications and particularly autoimmune diseases like that. And while it's not necessarily like a cause and effect um, of, you know, type of response, sometimes you can see that pop up. So there's not a whole lot of strong evidence that I've seen for uh, for psoriasis and beta blockers, uh, but even if they, you know, if your dermatologist thinks that, you mentioned three classes. There's actually many more classes. Uh, there's a few more classes of blood pressure medications, which makes it sort of nice in having other things that you can treat it with. So beta blockers, you know, I I don't flinch if somebody says, hey, I don't really want to take a beta blocker, or there's a reason for not taking a beta blocker. Uh, you mentioned two other classes, but there's others. So calcium channel blockers are one. Uh, those are things that end in peen. So philodipine, amlodipine, um, those are common and good blood pressure medications. ACE inhibitors is another class. Those are things like lisinopril, things that end in PRIL. And That's then there are the, yeah, and those are common and very good medications. I use those just about every every week. I see somebody that has has that that I'm treating their blood pressure with. Hey, doctor, and then there's, can I just ask this? Could it be that medications are not unlike foods? In some cases, people just happen to be allergic to, say, shrimp or peanuts or strawberries, what have you. Is it maybe that my particular body chemistry just had a reaction um, between the psoriasis and the beta blockers, but that doesn't mean that everybody would have that? Yeah, that's certainly a possibility. And we see that all the time with some drug allergies you know some people have it and some people don't but i did want to mention you know there are uh you know one of the the classes of medications that are used in combination and can be used just about in any with any other class of blood pressure medication are the diuretics so thiazide diuretics are very commonly used things like uh, hydrochlorothiazide or chlorothalidone both of those in combination, particularly with an ACE inhibitor or a calcium channel blocker, can be very useful in treating your your um, your blood pressure. So, 
And there's a couple other things out there that you can add that, um, uh, you know, aldosterone antagonists, there's uh, alpha blockers, um, there's, there's all kinds of other ones that we can use. So it doesn't, you know, it wouldn't bother me if in your particular case that you can't take a beta blocker. Um, and we do try to match those up. Unfortunately, in, in hypertension, it's so almost, we know certain individuals with other um, conditions, certain blood pressure classes of medications work better in those patients. But in most cases, it's sort of a trial and error thing. So um, I think they could probably treat your blood pressure and totally leave the beta blocker class alone and not have any problem with that. Real quick, doctor, can I just, for a little bit of levity, is uh, beer and coffee not also a diuretic? <laughs> <laughs> in different kind of ways. Uh, in okay, both of those, right. both of those in excess can make your blood pressure go up. So <laughs> yeah, I was just trying to cheat a little bit. Thank you. Doctor. There you go. Yes, sir. Okay. Thanks for calling there, Robert. All right. Let's go to Les in DeSoto County. Good morning, Les. Good morning, doctor. Uh, the question I have is, well, my late wife was an organ donor. And I, when I hear the last trumpet, I will also hope to be one. But will the COVID virus affect organ donning? And that also includes the vaccination. Will that affect the ability to donate? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, there are some things um, that in a screening process for organ donation, uh, once you sign up for that, that they are careful about and some things that would interfere. Active viral infections um, are probably not a good idea. Although COVID, once you've, once you've cleared COVID from your body, uh, I don't think that that is currently a contraindication from, uh, from donating any organs. And, and organ donation too, it's, it's, you know, it can be anything from uh, you don't have to die to do that. Um, you, you can do uh, organ donation through, say, blood uh, products or, um, or stem cells or bone marrow transplants. There's all kinds of ways to do that. And then there's also the solid organ transplants. That's the ones most people think about. Kidney, heart, lung, uh, liver, um, cornea. So there's all kinds of different ways that you can do that. Um, now, so... Probably what in this, and I don't know the, the explicit screening process that our current state has and other states around us, but there are a little bit differences uh, amongst different uh, organ procurement companies um, that, that sort of uh, mediate that process. So there may be some, some time period probably when they would not, you know, accept COVID, uh, somebody who's had active COVID infection. But if you've gotten over COVID, you should be fine. Also, the vaccine, antibodies, we have antibodies to all kinds of things. And that's the beauty of using vaccinations to uh, sort of use the body's own immune response to recognize something before you actually get infected with it <clears throat> or to decrease the risk of infection should you get it again. Um, so a vaccine shouldn't do anything to interfere with organ donation because your body's just making uh, uh, antibodies to that. And I think most people are aware of this, although some may not. The vaccinations, particularly the ones in the United States, there's absolutely no way that you can get COVID from these vaccinations. They don't produce 
a virus. They don't uh, have a live virus that's uh, in that vaccine. It's a totally different mechanism for that. So you should be you should be fine either way. What normally happens, and you may know this already, Les, is they will ask questions and they'll look into the medical record and the things that were going on in organ donation patients around the time that they uh, decide on which organs are most appropriate. There's also a lot of criteria about the health of those individual organs. So are the kidneys appropriately healthy to transplant to somebody else? Is the heart appropriately healthy? And there may be some tests that they do um, around the time of death that that help determine that. But great question, though. Um, yeah, well, and certainly... When my wife it, passed and, away, I, I filled in a questionnaire about her health and her history and such. And when she passed, her organs went hither and yon all over the United States to give life or quality of life to people. And it made me very proud. Uh, and uh, we both agreed that we would do that. And I was just curious. I mean, I tested negative for COVID. I'm going to get vaccinated in the near future. And I just wanted to ensure myself that uh, I would still be in a position to help those less fortunate when, as I said, I hear the last trumpet. And thank you for your, your information, Doc. Yes, sir. Thank you, Les. And thank you for uh, reminding us about those opportunities that we, we have a shortage of uh, uh, organ transplantation with, with organs that are available for patients. And uh, I'd encourage anybody to check into that and see if you would qualify as an organ donor. It's a wonderful way. It's a wonderful gift. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking, is a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family. To find out what we're all about, subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. This is Dr. Jimmy here and answering your questions and calls that you may have about any kind of uh, medical issue. The number to call is 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. Let's go to David in Union. Good morning, David. Good morning. How are you today? Thanks for, good. Thanks for calling. Uh, I guess I have a comment and a question related to that. Um Looking around on the internet, and I've been studying this since back in the summertime. There's a there's a lot of information out there on the use of ivermectin to uh, prevent and actually cure and treat COVID nineteen. Uh, you can only find it, for example, if you're looking on DuckDuckGo. You can't find Doctor Pierre Corey from <clears throat> I think it's I don't know Wisconsin maybe Massachusetts. Doctor, you Google that on DuckDuckGo, and there's tons of comments where he addressed the Senate, a bunch of people he's talked to. But if you look for it on Google, it doesn't show up, which generally indicates to me there's probably something going on. I'll take my tinfoil hat off now, though. Uh, but this, the torso of ivermectin, which is cheap, 
and pretty safe. Uh, one doctor told me it was safer than aspirin. Uh, for the to, and it will actually prevent people from getting it by. He told me it interfered with the production of the virus in the cell or something like that. Um, and my question is, why would something so inexpensive and so safe and that apparently works not be trumpeted from the rooftops? Uh, it, you know, I, like like I said, I, I feel like a uh, I'll wear a tinfoil hat when I talk about this, but it sure seems odd that everybody's pushing for uh, the, you know, to, to take a shot, something that's artificial, manufactured, uh, that to me, from when I read about the testing process, you know, the, the companies were the ones who tested it. There was no independent folks out there checking on it. Maybe I didn't get that right, but my concern would be that, yeah, they have a vested interest in selling nine billion dollars worth of this stuff so but why wouldn't people want to at least give ivermectin a shot and that's i'll I'll hang up now and let you respond thank you sure thanks dave yeah there's there's a lot of questions about different medications um and in similar fashion you know ivermectin is an anti-helmet and that's a hard word to say but basically it is a medication that's used uh to treat uh worms basically um, it's used both in humans and in animals too for roundworms and other um, other uh, um, helminth uh, infections. So it's a it's a different mechanism basically. Um, so you know what ivermectin does is it interferes with uh, the fancy thing as a chloride channel um, in uh, in helminths. So a chloride chloride is an ion that the body uses in different animals use to help regulate different processes so it interferes with that just in in these uh animals in the in the worms to to kill them um so a couple of of things about ivermectin so there's not a mechanism within the virus the virus doesn't really have a chloride channel that's similar to that um so there's no scientific mechanism by which it would work to treat it now i i think in talking to different people, I, I really think there's a there's so much overwhelming um, anxiety and uh, ongoing, you know, with any kind of pandemic, if you look in the history of pandemics, there's a ton of this where you just get overwhelmed with it and emotionally to the point where you're thinking, well, there's got to be something out there that's simple, that's cheap, that would work. However, and a lot of people, unfortunately, and even in the medical profession capitalize on this and uh, either for notoriety or different reasons they try to uh, to um, you know sort of push different things like ivermectin that really there's no scientific mechanism by which it would work um, and there's no studies that look at it so we typically would do studies to test this and if you're talking about prevention we would have to have thousands and thousands of people on ivermectin and look at their exposure to COVID-19 and see if the ones who were on ivermectin versus those who weren't in a placebo-controlled trial, that means you give some people, half the people, basically the ivermectin and the other half of a placebo, a sugar pill, and see if the ivermectin group got it. Um, we don't have that. We don't have that data. So, And you mentioned, uh, you know, Dave did mention that that ivermectin was harmless. Actually, there are some side effects that you, you know, just about with any kind of medication, uh, it's really, you know, not fair to compare it to something, 
even like aspirin, sort of an apples to oranges comparison. Uh, one comment about other things. Now, there's plenty of things that have been looked at uh, for treatment. For people who get COVID-19, just about the only, and we've looked at a ton of stuff. We've looked at Zithromax. We've looked at, um, we've looked at hydroxychloroquine. We've looked at uh, other antibiotics. We've looked at uh, lots of uh, remdesivir, which is an antiviral drug. So there's lots of things that we have actually looked at and we have good data. Just about the only thing that works early on in the illness is a monoclonal antibody uh, therapy. This is the same therapy that uh, our former president uh, uh, Trump got uh, when he uh, developed COVID-19. And there's actually patients that I've referred for that infusion, and it tends to cut down on some of the symptoms that they may have and how long they would have it. But outside of that, there's not really anything treatment-wise that can do that. As far as prevention, then um, antibodies to the vaccine do work. I mean, so, uh, antibodies to the virus do work, which is why we vaccinate. That's why it was developed. Um, there is some mistrust out there uh, amongst a lot of people. I do want to mention that there are objective boards that look at this, data safety monitoring boards that look at vaccines over time, even ones that were uh, the, the pace was advanced with particularly with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, but others worldwide. So there is safety data with that. And then there is an objective committee that does look at that, not to mention the FDA, which has to approve that even for emergency use in both these vaccines. So it's not just the companies making a ton of money, which they are, I'll grant you that. But, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of research and data that goes into this. So it is dangerous. Um, as a medical professional, it is dangerous to suggest therapies that don't have that data to back them up. And, you know, the first tenet of good medicine is to do no harm. And that's an, uh, in our oath that we take as physicians and in the medical community. And I, I can't, you know, I can and others can in good conscience recommend things that don't have that data to su suggest that they're going to work and that they're going to minimize the harm that we expose patients to. So that's my two cents about that. Don't really see anything that would suggest ivermectin would be uh, useful in the treatment or prevention of COVID. All right, we're going to go to John in Mobile. Good morning, John. Good morning, Dr. Stewart. Uh, I'm a 69-year-old African-American, and uh, I have been taking vitamin D supplements uh, for a good while, more than five years. I've been tested for my levels, uh, and they've always hovered around the range 22 to 29. Uh, sir, I have, if, if you if just bear with me for a few seconds, I have an article, and you may be familiar with this, entitled How a Vitamin D Test Misdiagnosed African Americans. Are you familiar with that, sir? Uh, I am not. Uh, now, I do know there are, the, in, in the lab tests, sometimes the ranges that we use with different populations, you have to take that into account. So, and there are many lab ranges for African-Americans that uh, we use a little bit differently. Like the range may be like over 20 is good, but it, take vitamin D for instance, in the general population, what I consider to be good is over 40. 
So, and you you mentioned, you know, certainly we know African Americans because of uh, increased skin pigment that puts you at a higher risk of having lower levels of vitamin D. So I may have interrupted you there. I wanted you to finish your your uh, thought process. Yes, sir. And this is this is an article, and I just like to read a couple of things from it, if you don't mind. I'll be very quick. Sure. Uh, sure. It says by the by the current blood test for vitamin D, most African Americans are deficient. That can lead to weak bones. So many doctors prescribe the supplement, according to this article. But the problem is with the test, not the patients, according to a new study uh, that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. The vast majority of African Americans have plenty of the form of vitamin D that counts, the type that their cells can readily use. The population in the U.S. with the best bone health happens to be African American. This was published by Dr. Uh, brother, a man by the name of Dr. Rabbi Sad Honey, professor of medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital. He said, but almost 80% of these individuals define as having vitamin D uh, 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 deficiency. And then he goes on to say, uh, Dr. Stewart, uh, the conclusion from this study is that just because your total levels are low, it doesn't mean we need to replace vitamin D using supplements. Uh, as I said, it was published. This is an article that was published in 2013. Uh, and then he says, uh, if I can get to this portion, uh, sir, just he says, uh, but Dr. But Dr. Tahani says doctors should hold off on prescribing vitamin D until they do other tests to determine whether their African American patients are really vitamin D deficient. Those tests include blood levels of calcium, bone density tests, and parathyroid hormones. So I just wanted to get your response to that. Yeah, John, I, I, I'm going to agree with you on some of this. So um, if you're talking about pure vitamin D deficiency that may be associated with other symptoms that are sort of things like fatigue or muscle aches or pains, there's not really a whole lot of good evidence to suggest that at a lower level, now, if you're less than 20, that's pretty low, e- even if you are African-American. I would, I would say go ahead and, and look at those other things you, you talked about. But if you're totally asymptomatic, there's not a whole lot of evidence that would suggest that even treating anybody, whether you're African-American or white or Asian, uh, would help. Uh, I agree for those high-risk populations, if you have kidney disease, if you have osteoporosis, if you have other things that are going on, uh, if you've had a fragility fracture, all of those would be reasons in conjunction with that vitamin D test uh, that may, you know, may support um, supplementing that. What I would what I would encourage you to do is to talk with your physician about are there any and here's the question to ask them: Are there any other risk factors that would would make you make them think that you need to be on vitamin D? And those are the, some of the ones that you mentioned. If they say no, I think you've got a good, you know, you could probably stop it um, unless you have those other things. Now, certainly you want to get your, your recommended daily allowance of vitamin D, uh, whether or not that's a supplement or not, doesn't really matter. Um, but that's, you know, it's certainly not going to, in those type of ranges, it's not going to harm you. And, and being a male too, you know, males are at, at not at an increased risk as much as say females are. Uh, from that. So, John, I, I agree with you. You got to take things in totality and having those conversations with your doctor should be the, the way to decide whether or not in your case, you know, does that 
is that really needed at this point for vitamin D supplementation. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Hi, I'm Walt Grayson. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. Some of the big names that travel up and down the highways, obviously Elvis and Johnny Cash, and you have Jerry Lee Lewis, Hall Perkins. Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. Johnny Cash suggested that Carl write a song called Blue Suede Shoes that was all kind of created with Aaron Amory. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. This is Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. Uh, we're going to go to Darren in Tishomingo County. Good morning, Darren. Yeah. Hello? Yes, sir. You're on the air. Okay. Uh uh, I was, I'm, I've been having trouble with arthritis. I've been diagnosed, as a matter of fact, a couple of years ago, with trauma, practically arthritis, and uh, I use creams, arthritis creams, in my back of my legs and on my hands, back of my hands and arms a little. But I was wondering, you know, I'm, I'm 55 years old. Should I go to a specialist and get this? Uh, to be getting it taken care of, or am I going to just, he, the doctor told me, he said, if I ever get down, I won't get back up. And likely, I think he meant that, you know, I'm I'm practically going to be crippled over this. So uh, I was wondering, uh, should I go to a specialist and go to getting this under control if I could at 55 years old? Yeah, that's a great question, Darren. So, um, so arthritis, there's two big categories of that. There's autoimmune arthritis, and then there's sort of the wear and tear um, arthritis. Uh, the wear and tear arthritis is one in which you, that's the most common one. And if you've been very active and certain joints are affected more than others, um, there are lots of good things that you can take. Now you mentioned some things over the counter. Certainly those can work to decrease your pain, uh, and, and make sure that you're getting enough movement with those. Uh, however, uh, if you're getting to the point where that's just not cutting it and you're still having some pain i would see if somebody for that uh, there may be some other things that they can do um there are some injections that they can do that do sort of slow that down or at least decrease the pain that you're having i think your comment about um staying active is extremely important uh, we know that particularly with osteoarthritis which is that wear and tear arthritis if you stop moving then you're going to have some problems i mean you're going to you know you're going to have joints that sort of freeze up uh, and you're going to have some chronic things go on. So, uh, but I think, yeah, it sounds like you're probably at the point where you can at least, you know, talk to somebody about some, some options that you have and then, uh, then, you know, sort of go from there, but, uh, definitely keep moving as much as you can, but there's no, no sense in, you know, just, just, uh, grinning and bearing it. Uh, there's certainly, there's other things out there that you can do to treat your pain. Could I ask you one question then? Yeah. Is there a certain age? 
that that really hits you bad, you know, like, you know, 50, 60, because it seemed like it just started hitting me a couple of years ago. Yeah, that's pretty 50, common. Yeah, that's 52. pretty common. People have, you know, they, they say that like, okay, well, this was the year that it really started bothering me. Um, it, it's different with everybody, uh, Darren. It's, it's some people, you know, if you look at like professional football players or people who injured their knees any old injury that can be a site where osteoarthritis can be worse. So, um, you know, for some people that's in their thirties, even that they can start to have problems. If you're obese and you're carrying around more weight, particularly your knees, your hips, your back, that can all be affected by that extra weight too. Uh, but, uh, some people go 60 or 70 before they, you know, start having that. But certainly that's about the time, you know, fifties to sixties where most people will start to feel it. Okay, well, that's it, then. I appreciate it. Yes, sir, and uh, good luck to you. All right, let's go to Barbara in Boonville. Uh, I got a question to ask. I'm fixing to take the COVID-19 shot. Yes, and, ma'am. Uh, I'm, on, I'm on methotrexate. I got rheumatoid arthritis, and uh, I want to know if it's safe for this. And also, uh, I called uh, Nurse Link, and they told me... Uh, she talked to FDA and said uh, if I'd ever been allergic to any vaccine, uh, you know, let them know. And I just want to know, I had a pneumonia shot one time and my arm swelled up and turned red. And uh, I just wondered if the same medicine is in that pneumonia shot is in the COVID-19 shot. Yeah, great questions there, Barbara. So uh, first one, I think you're probably going to be uh, good to get it, you know, taking methotrexate and having rheumatoid arthritis, particularly if the rheumatoid arthritis is well controlled. I've been talking to some of my rheumatology friends and immunology friends with some patients that we share, and uh, that's probably, you know, that's probably not a contraindication for getting it. And having those conditions like that, like rheumatoid arthritis, can potentially put you, you know, at increased risk if you got COVID. As far as the the complication from the former vaccine. I, you know, I don't think that, but they're pretty different in the way that they're made and the constituents, what's in the, each one of those. So I don't think that's going to be a, a contraindication either for getting it. So sounds like you could, you can go ahead with that. Okay. Well, uh, it didn't, uh, I wasn't bad allergic to it. It just swelled and turned red and that's all it done to me, you know? Yeah. And that's, we call that a local reaction. And typically even to get, if it's a vaccine that you would get in the future, uh, that you have that too, that's not a contraindication from getting it again. It's And it can be caused by a number of things. It can be local irritation just from the site. It can be uh, sort of the body's immune response saying, hey, we recognize this. We're going to, you know, it, put those cells in there that causes the swelling or the uh, redness at the site. But that's a local reaction. Okay. Well, thank you. All right. Yes, ma'am. Uh, we're going to go to, uh, hold on just a second. Uh, we've got about one minute left. So I th- Sue from Beaumont, if you can get it in in about 30 seconds there. Yes, sir. I just wondered, I know you're sick of COVID questions, but some people get the virus and have no symptoms whatsoever. And I'm just wondering why medical science hasn't corralled all these people and tested them from stem to stern to find out what there might be one little factor that would make a, a, a vaccine that make, would make people, uh, you know, resistant to it. Yeah, uh, that's, and, and Sue, they're doing that. They're, they're looking at all kinds of things from blood type to uh, the way that people's immune systems are put together, but you're exactly right. And there's not much predicting it right now. 
We do know young people as a group don't have a lot of the symptoms. They can still have the virus and transmit it, but there's a lot of research going on in that area, and uh, we just don't have all the information yet. Hopefully we will in the, in the months and years to come. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. I'm Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law, host of In Legal Terms. If you're enjoying this podcast, I encourage you to listen to In Legal Terms, the show about you and your rights. We find interesting legal topics to bring to you and let you know how the law affects you. Find In Legal Terms on any podcasting platform on your smart device or on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org.